Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to be with you. The phone number, 877-973-7425, should you wish to be on the program. As you know, if you're a listener of this program regularly, I've been out the last few days. On Monday, I did my show from Washington, D.C. on Tuesday and Wednesday. I had meetings of the vast right-wing conspiracy, reporter panels, and the like. Um, A friend of mine, I have not been to Washington, D.C. since 2019, before COVID. A friend of mine who runs a PR firm up there suggested I come up, and now would be a good time for me as, um, well, things are happening behind the scenes with radio and stuff. It'd be a good time to come up, get in front of the press that I haven't really Uh, been in touch with for a long time. Let me pivot just a little bit. I try to be personal with you guys. You know, in the last few years, I've kind of wondered, I mean, does anybody really even care what I think anymore nationally? So it was kind of funny. In 2015, I did that uh, gathering in Atlanta, and literally every one of the Republican presidential candidates came We uninvited Trump after the Megyn Kelly stuff. Um, At the time, people forget at the time I did it because I didn't want him to be a distraction for the other candidates. I thought it was unfair because I knew what would happen. Every reporter would demand that every one of those candidates uh, take a position on what he said if he was there and whether or not he should come. And so it it was he didn't do what I'd asked him to do, which was to clarify he really didn't mean uh, what I knew he meant on the Megyn Kelly situation. didn't invite him. Uh, What was so funny is that about the same time, a magazine profile of me came out in the Atlantic, uh, the most influential conservative in America. Talk about going from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Uh, I mean, in the last few years, I've been wondering, does anybody even care what the hell I think about anything? It was kind of just from a, like not a prideful ego point, but just just a matter of, of made me feel good that uh, yes, um, you, you you say I'm in the building and suddenly everybody wanted to come see and, and talk. Um, I, I appreciated that. The the compliments from people of of me just calling it as, as I see it and, and not being willing to be bullied by either side. And there are times, if you listen, where I disagree with my own side on stuff and I think they get it wrong and, and I say so and sometimes get withering criticism even from callers to this program. And I, I just, you you know what I think. You, you know why I think it. I'm not going to shy away, and I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. And I think that's one of the, the downsides of a lot of talk radio these days is there are a lot of people who want to grow their talk radio show by telling you what you want to hear and affirming your core beliefs, whether they believe it or not. I don't think long-term I can come across honestly or candidly or transparently if I tell you what you want to hear as opposed to telling you what I think. So it was nice to sit down with reporters from ABC and CBS and Axios and Politico and the New York Times, the Associated Press, The Hill and Yahoo and and the Wall Street Journal and uh, the uh, Fox News and talk to them and discuss with them the news of the day. And, And they actually wanted to ask probative questions of of where I see things. And so I'll I'll tell you some of the conversations I had and and the things that I think, the things that I thought, the things that I said. What I find remarkable was two things that kept coming up over and over and over in interviews. 
One was the general acknowledgement behind the scenes that Joe Biden has hit a point in his age where he's struggling to be president. And that came up with reporters from mainstream media outlets. I am friends with Russell Moore, who used to be the head of the Ethics Religious Liberty Commission. And he's now, I guess, the editor of Christianity Today. We were talking uh, a year or so ago. I, and, you know, I, I remember this. It's kind of a, it was a striking conversation for me at the time. We weren't talking about politics or the news today. We were talking about families. He was asking how my wife was doing. Talking about just family and parents. He had lost a relative. And he said just kind of offhandedly, he said, you know, there was a day. It's like I could put my finger on the calendar of that, that day. A precise day where suddenly my parents could no longer take care of themselves and I had to become my parents' parent. And I think that happens to almost everyone, that almost every person will experience this moment in their lives where they will almost feel like it was an exact day. And it really wasn't. It was a slow thing over time, and you tried to ignore it. You tried to push it out of your head. But over time, it became too obvious, and there was a day where you finally had to come to terms with the fact that my mom or my dad has gotten so old, he or she cannot take care of himself anymore. We're seeing that with Joe Biden. The switch has flipped, and he is surrounded by people who can take care of him. And this is not to say he doesn't know what's going on. I am watching video of him right now getting lost on a stage yet again, trying to get off the stage. Where should he go? You should know that's up. The RNC just pushed that out yet again. Here he is getting lost on a stage. It's not that he can't function. You know, like I know people who are in their 80s and 90s, who they have coherent conversations, they know what's going on in the world, their mind is still sharp, but their body is starting to fade away. Their feet are more shuffled, they're more tired, they sleep more, uh, their, their appetite has changed. You all know this, if you've experienced a loved one who has aged, a grandparent, a parent, you see it happen. Their mind can still be sharp. They can still be engaged in conversation, but they don't engage in as many conversations. And though their mind is sharp, they still get forgetful. A day comes when it happens. And what was remarkable in these conversations with reporters in Washington is how so many of them, not all of them, it didn't come up with all of them. Some of them, when it did come up, didn't want to acknowledge it, but some pretty damn prominent reporters... We're nodding, yes, this has happened behind the scenes at the White House. They talk about it, that Biden is aged. There is a rumor circulating that the New York Times has a pretty devastating piece on Biden at the White House and what he knew or did not know about Hunter Biden. And it will come out shortly after the election. 
that the New York Times has internally turned on Joe Biden. They know the tide has turned for the Republicans. And shortly after the election, the New York Times will begin the campaign of getting Joe Biden off the 2024 ballot and assuring the nation he will not run again. And it will be a devastating behind-the-scenes look at how the White House functions or does not function and how Joe Biden's age comes into it. But there's something else that came up. And I've heard this from friends as well. Good friends who spend time at Mar-a-Lago that though not to the extent of Joe Biden, it's also happening to an 80-year-old at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Donald Trump is younger than Joe Biden, but not by much. And just like it happens to your grandparents and mine, my parents and yours, the day is coming where Donald Trump himself will also have that light switch flip, where he will go from a person who is fully in command of everything and capable of taking care of himself on a daily basis to needing more and more help. The mind can be there, the sharpness can be there, the body can be there, but it all begins to slow down. Age is one of those sad things. What was it? The um, the riddle of the Sphinx with Oedipus, where I think I think it was the the story of Oedipus. At one point, he encounters a Sphinx, and he must answer the riddle or die. What is the animal? that walks on four leg, four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening. It's a human. Four legs is a baby. Two legs in middle age, walks with a cane or assistance at the end of their life. And I, I mean, I was kind of stunned that these reporters, well, I mean, you and I talk about it. I call him Grandpa Dementia. But these reporters in Washington starting to openly say, yeah, this is happening. And, and yeah, there are rumors of a pretty damning story coming from the New York Times about what's happening behind the scenes and how his age is impacting him and, and what he knew or, or knows about Hunter Biden and, and all of that stuff kind of strung together. What I also thought was remarkable is how so many of the reporters in Washington, D.C., who pay attention to politics nationally are really more and more aware of what the trend lines are and that, yes, the Republicans actually do have better than a 50-50 shot at this point of taking back the Senate, that, yes, Herschel Walker in Georgia has a real good shot of winning this thing even without a runoff, that, yes, Adam Laxalt's probably going to win in Nevada, yes, uh, John Fetterman probably can't make it across the finish line in Pennsylvania, and, yes, as a matter of fact, as Republicans are saying, yes, it's his wife who's been pushing him. She sees herself as the de facto senator, and, yes, these reporters in Washington are mindful of it. Uh, there's even some sentiment that Blake Masters really could pull it off in Arizona. There really is the sentiment that Ron DeSantis could go to the distance for 2024. There really is this sense that Stacey Abrams' career in politics is over as anything other than an out-of-the-way activist. 
What's remarkable to me to some degree is that you don't hear these things in public. And, and part of this is the reporter sentiment. They're not pursuing stories on these. These aren't their angles. They aren't their beats. They don't write on these things. So they have these sentiments and they don't come out in their reporting because they don't report on these topics, but they have opinions and these are their opinions. And their opinions kind of mirror most of our opinions. But I'll tell you the other thing I was kind of struck by. I mentioned several times, there were lots of questions, what are the Republicans going to do? Not what are the Republicans going to do if they take back the House, but what are the Republicans going to do when they take back the House? And one of the things I've said is that they are going to have hearings on the Justice Department. And why is Merrick Garland arresting pro-life activists? We're up to now 17 pro-life activists arrested and not a single investigation into a single firebombing of a pregnancy center. More than a dozen, maybe two dozen pregnancy centers tied to churches that help new moms for free have been torched by abortion activists. There is no federal investigation that we know of at least. But we're now up to 17 pro-life activists being dragged from their house at gunpoint by federal authorities for protesting outside abortion clinics, claiming that they're violating the, the access to abortion clinic law. It's remarkable. There are going to be investigations. What was more remarkable to me is that hardly any of these reporters knew anything about any of that. Simply not on their radar. It's on my radar. I hear about this all the time. It's on my radar. Only a matter of time before the Republicans start probing this and asking tough questions. And that this is such a big story between you and me and what I talk about on this program and all these reporters were clueless just reinforces to me how much of a bubble so many people in D.C. are in. I talked to one reporter who's at a publication up there I really like uh, and... She said she is absolutely in a bubble. She knows she's in a bubble. She goes out of her way to ask questions and call out to and reach out to sources in other states who may see the world differently from her just to try to get a sense of what's actually going on in the world outside of Washington. And I appreciate that. I don't have to come to the same conclusion. I don't have to share your own worldview. But I do appreciate that there are still reporters out there who are mindful of the bubble that D.C. puts them in. They try to do the outreach. What I'm really stunned by, though, are those behind the scenes who privately more and more recognize what you and I have known all along. Joe Biden is beginning to fade. His age is getting to him. And the White House staff is beginning to mutter to the New York Times. It's only a matter of time before they push the story out, assuming that all these people who are telling me it's going to happen or that they know what they're talking about, given the caliber of people talking about it, I wouldn't be surprised to see it the day after the election. Americans for Prosperity plays to win. That matters a lot to me. I know a lot of D.C.-based organizations that just want to pass paper around to other Beltway insiders or claim they speak for everyday Americans without ever having to leave Washington, D.C. Americans for Prosperity is different. They're not a think tank. They're grassroots do tank. Americans for Prosperity is a one-of-a-kind, freedom-oriented, limited government advocacy and accountability organization that actually takes action to expand opportunity for all Americans and defend your freedom of speech. 
They're doing great work at all levels of government. What's their secret? Well, they don't really rely on Washington. They built a network of concerned citizens who are stepping up for freedom in communities all around the country. If you want to learn more, if you want to find out how to get involved with Americans for Prosperity with a chapter near you, and I assure you, they have a chapter near you, check them out at americansforprosperity.org slash Eric. That's americansforprosperity.org slash E-R-I-C-K. How's about we take some phone calls? 877-973-7425. Uh, let's go to Rhonda first. You're up. Welcome. Hi, Eric. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm fine. My question is, why don't you run for president of the United States? <laughs> are you serious? I am serious. I listened to Rush Limbaugh for probably 10 years. When we lost him, you were the next best thing, in my opinion. I listen to you every single day. I follow everything that you do. Yes, I will be at your bourbon uh, shooting range and stuff like that. But what my question is, is how come you're so knowledgeable? Your call screener says because you're not crazy. <laughs> I, I care what your opinion is on everything. I may not always agree with you, but you're right. Well, okay. Listen. Uh, first of all, I, I, I'm I'm flattered uh, that you would say that. But uh, one, um, you, you know what? So there's a there's a book. Um, Richard Bing Kramer wrote this book, "What It Takes," uh, and it was a study in the the night. I think it was uh, the the was it Herbert Humphrey, uh, Richard Nixon campaign, and. Every person, and, and y'all don't appreciate this, I, I think, and I didn't until I read this book, uh, that people who run for president aren't actually normal. And, and now listen to me, I'm not insulting them. Every person who runs for president has some personality quirk, uh, like an, an amped up sense of ambition. And I don't possess that. I am not, contrary to what some people think, I'm actually not a very competitive person. I just think if I do absolutely fundamentally as good as I possibly can, my, my work will shine for itself. I was the guy in law school. This is If you ever talk to anyone who went to law school with me, they may not remember anything about me except this. I always finished my exam in half the time it took. If it was a four-hour law school exam, I was done within two hours. If it was a three-hour exam, I was done within an hour and a half every single time. Uh, I didn't have to put in the extra time or work and stay long to get it right because it was it was going to be my best work out of the gate. And it wasn't that I was competing. It was just I'm trying to do the best I can. And I, I don't have the personality to run for president of the United States. To run for president of the United States, you got to be more of an extrovert than I am. To run for president of the United States, you got to have a a uh, you you can't start from radio show talk show host and to run for president. You need to be a governor or a senator or something. And I'm not going to run for elected office anymore because I did it before, and I have an unbelievable disdain for this thing we call a constituent. Uh, they all have problems and complaints. They don't appreciate the work you've done, and I don't want to put up with them. And if you're president of the United States, you have 330 million constituents. May God have mercy on whoever does it. Look, Rhonda, in all honesty, I I, I totally appreciate it. I, I thank you for listening, for being a fan, and, and thinking that I would be qualified for the job. I just, I don't have that 
seething ambition to do anything like that. You know, I'll be very honest with you. At one point in my life, I wanted to. When I was a kid, other kids said they want to be an astronaut or fireman. I said I want to be president of the United States. I grew up and got wise enough to know I don't want to. I've been the man in the arena on a local city council. That was enough for me. I don't want to be president of the United States. What I want to do is guide people through this world who haven't lost their minds and think the world has and just be a light in the wilderness for them. So winter is coming, and I got to tell you, I love the weight of the bull and branch sheets. I like them in the summer when it's hot and you don't want a lot of covers on you, but in the wintertime, they're just the perfect weight, the perfect, I don't know, smoothness. They're 100% organic cotton threads. They've got super softness. They get softer every time you wash them. They're just the drape when you're laying down and stuff. They're not, they're just perfect sheets. I love them. Uh, I am effusive with my praise for Bull and Branch, and I'm delighted to have them as an advertiser. Look, they're made from the highest quality threads. They got superior softness. They got over 25,000 rave customer reviews and counting. I'm one of them. The quality you can tell is great. They hold up well after all the washes I've put them through and they just get softer. It doesn't matter what the thread count is. The fiber sucks, and you can tell they put a lot of great detail into the fibers they use. And look, Bola Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping, returns on all orders. You're going to feel the difference. You're not going to want to send them back. The first 100% organic fair trade certified bedding company ever. They used 90% less water than conventional production, zero pesticides, other chemical, chemical, toxic chemicals. They don't use them. It's just fantastic. Listen, I'm effusive with my praise. I love Bull and Branch. Try them for yourself. And again, you get a 30-night risk-free trial, free shipping, returns on all orders. Try the sheets that will make you fall for the coziest night sleep in the season where you want cozy sheets. 15% off your first set of sheets. Free shipping when you use promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, at BolandBranch.com. That's BolandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. The promo code is ERIC. Trust me, they're worth it. We've got five bedrooms, five beds, Boland Branch sheets on every bed. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425, should you wish to be on the program. Uh, let's see. Where was I? I'm, I'm being badgered by, uh, Charlie and Philip. Not really. I just, when we travel, you know, I have a producer who won't get an iPhone. And so we have to send green chat bubbles and then it messes up all of my chat group chats. So nevertheless, we'll go back to the phones before I get to the phones though. I, I, I gotta, I just need to spend one more moment on this. Um, and yes, you you might get fired for being a green bubble guy. It annoy you have no idea how it just it it just it makes me aggravated that I got to have like multiple group chats to go to the same two freaking people depending on whether I want one to go to a cell phone or a laptop. Nonetheless, almost said a bad word there. I got to play this audio again. Question that he just asked you. You're running for governor of Georgia. Uh, I would assume, maybe incorrectly. But while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? But let's be clear. 
Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are, it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out, but we also have to talk about what a governor can do. A governor can address housing prices. A governor can address the cost of education. A governor can put money into the pockets of everyday hardworking Georgians instead of giving tax cuts to the wealthy. Now, a lot has been said in the last 24 hours since Stacey Abrams made her ghoulish remark about abortion. But it really is important for you to listen to this one more time, not her answer. You all know what she said, but the question. Question that he just asked you. You're running for governor of Georgia. Uh, I would assume, maybe incorrectly, but while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? The question was not about abortion. It was, you keep talking about abortion, what about gas? What about food prices? What about those livability issues? And Stacey Abrams took those and pivoted it back to abortion. That abortion is not just a healthcare issue, it is a livability issue, it is an affordability issue, it is an inflation issue, that uh, you've gotta be able to kill your kids to make ends meet. That was her answer. You may not like that I paraphrased her in that way, but that's what she meant. It's what she said while dancing around the actual words that abortion is an economic issue that you should be able to kill your child to be able to make ends meet. By the way, stretch to its logical conclusion, that is an argument to be made for afterbirth as well. Where is the cutoff point for being able to kill your child to deal with inflation, Stacy? Why birth? Why is that the demarcation? Why is that a better demarcation than when the child can feel pain in the womb? Why is that a better demarcation than when the child is conceived? Why birth? What's remarkable here is not just her answer, but that so much in the media have been so fixated on a supposed extremist position of the GOP of uh, no abortions at all, that they haven't wanted to focus on the Democrat extreme position of taxpayer-funded abortion until the moment of birth. And Stacey Abrams stepped in it in large part because she's become comfortable saying this stuff because everyone in the media is comfortable with that answer, and now suddenly there's blowback on that answer. It's a ghoulishness, the idea that you should be able to kill children to help your bottom line, that children are expendable. Let me tell you about kids. It's never a good time to have them. You will never have enough money for them. You will never be in the job to be able to have them. What is remarkable, however, is once you have a child, you are typically stunned 
and how it just kind of works out. Whether it's government assistance or the help of family and friends or the help of the church, you will be surprised when you have children, particularly, most especially after you're married and then have kids, that it doesn't get easy, but it's rarely as overwhelming as people think. There's something else here, and this has to be said. Stacey Abrams is a 48-year-old, never-been-married-never-had-kids woman who maybe should shut the hell up about family matters. Now, I'm sorry if that offends some of you, but for a 48-year-old, childless, single woman to try to relate to families and say abortion is one of those issues related to inflation and jobs and the cost of groceries and gas, that is an argument no woman who is married and has kids would make. That's not misogyny for me to say that. The same would go for a 48-year-old single man who thinks he understands family issues. You don't understand family issues because you're headed out of middle age and still don't even have one. You can't understand the struggles a family goes through when you're a 48-year-old single person who's never been married and has no children. You can't. It is a relatability issue. And whether you like it or not, Democrats... A large portion, the most influential portion of the people who will go vote happen to be people who have children. Democrats talk a lot about relatability. Democrats talk about the quota. We need this many black people. We need this many Hispanic people. We need this many Asian people. We need this many gay people. We need this many lesbians. We need this many transgender people. We got to have quotas for all of them. What about the married people with kids? You have put up in Georgia a candidate who is childless and middle-aged and single. And you want her to tell her state what's good for families? She doesn't know because she's one of these people who tells you you got to have this lived experience to understand these things, and she's never had that lived experience. By her own baseline for how Brian Kemp can't understand the plight of black voters because he's not one, she can't understand the plight of families because she doesn't have one. That's not meant to be cruel. It's holding her to the same intellectual standard she holds everyone else to. When you are asked by a reporter, maybe instead of talking about abortion, what about these livability issues? And you say, oh, abortion is a livability issue. That's a level of ghoulish tone deafness you don't expect from a politician who so many people think is one of the gold standards for American politicians. It's rather ghoulish. And by the way, just by the way, I know Stacey Abrams thinks men can have abortions. But what about the men who can't? How is abortion an economic issue for them? How is she going to relate to them? 
How is she going to talk to them about how if only they can have abortions when they can't, that that's a livability issue for them, an economic issue for them? She can't do that. Stacey Abrams in 2018 was a pretty compelling candidate with a very interesting story. Stacey Abrams of 2022 is a caricature of Abrams 2018, and she's done it to herself. Never believe your press. Never believe your press. Abrams not only believed her press, in large part, she orchestrated her press. And now, the weight of all of those stories is sinking her campaign. In black parts of Georgia, predominantly black parts of metro Atlanta, the voters aren't showing up at the early voting locations. That's not anecdote. That's data. She supposedly had the awesome ground game. Brian Kemp has that ground game. She told all the Democrats in Georgia, trust her, they did, and now they're toast because of it. And I'm sure she can move to Hollywood after the campaign is over and star in Star Trek and never have to say she's sorry or even say she lost. She's become the butt of jokes. And I will be very honest with you, I hate to see that because I believe that the Republican Party needs to have good competition from the other side in a free market of ideas because it makes the Republican Party a better party to have aggressive candidates on the other side who are savvy, media sharp, and have the chance to win makes my side have to do better and run its A-game all the time. And one of the things that has caused a collapse of Republicans in some parts of the country, including my part of the country, is because the Democrats have had such craptacular candidates over the past few years, the GOP could let its game slip and along came Abrams in 2018, firing on all cylinders with this ground game and a long-term vision of how to win. And the GOP got itself behind, put in charge a chairman who convinced everyone in the Georgia GOP not to even bother to vote in the 2021 runoff, somehow was able to maintain his position and tried to find people to run against the current governor, lost all those people, doesn't have an operation to really compete with Abrams, but Abrams herself is flopping around on the floor like a fish out of water and put Kemp in pole position to win. When you are confronted with a reporter asking you, please, instead of abortion, talk about these kitchen table issues, on MSNBC, it's not like it was a hostile question from Fox News. It wasn't Peter Ducey asking her this. It was a friendly Democratic voice. Hey, you've talked about abortion. Why not talk about kitchen table issues, life, quality of life issues like inflation and the cost of groceries? Oh, well, abortion's one of those because if you don't have money, you need to murder your child to be able to afford it. Oh, my gosh. She did that to a friendly audience and it blew up in her face. This is not a quality, high caliber politician. This is a caricature of a high quality, uh, capable politician. And this is who the Democrats are stuck with. It's who they promoted. It's who they funded. 85% of her money comes from California and New York. In 2018, Beto O'Rourke in Texas and Stacey Abrams in Georgia 
got all the national media attention. They were the new stars of the Democratic Party. They were on the covers of Vanity Fair and Time magazine. They were paraded around the country, vetted on television shows like The View, beloved darlings of the media and Hollywood and Democratic elite. And so many voters poured so much money into their races, they cost Democrats otherwise winnable races. And they're doing the same thing in 2022. Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams have become the gift that keeps on giving to the Republican Party. They will fundraise off of the Hollywood elite in the New York social Democratic crowd. They will take money from Democrats who could use it to win. They'll deprive dollars to John Fetterman and to Mark Kelly and to Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. And they will cost those candidates their races all while still losing their own. And they deserve it. One of the groups on the outside that's also helping the GOP push back on these people is Patriot Mobile. And all they have to do is get your cell phone business. And they will give you in return guaranteed great service with incredible discounts at a great fair price. What you do is you go to patriotmobile.com slash eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. And all you do is move your cell phone service there. They use the same cell towers everybody else uses. You don't have to worry about quality of service. You go to patriotmobile.com slash eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Or you can call them 972-PATRIOT, 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get free activation. If you're a veteran, a first responder, an NRA member, a teacher, you got a lot of lines because you got a lot of kids with cell phones, they can help you out with discounts and you get that guaranteed great service. Don't believe me, go see their map, detailed coverage down to your house. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric, PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. All right, I want to jump back to the phones here. Teresa, you're going to be the last caller today. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I know I'm backtracking just a little bit, but going That's back right. to your uh, <laughs> the car issue, there's two points that I want to make. Right now, gasoline-powered cars are paying for all the maintenance of the roads. Electric cars up to this point have not had to do that. So the electric cars are getting a free ride um, <laughs> on mm-hmm. the roads presently. I know Pete Buttigieg, he has come out and said, oh, well, I'm going to charge per mile but I think that's just a trick that once everybody goes to electric, it's like, oh, we have nobody to pay for the roads. What are we going to do with them? The other thing is is a freedom issue. When you have an electric car that has a limited mileage that you can go before you have to stop, you have to plug in, you have to take a little break, then you don't really have the freedom to go as far as you want when you want on your schedule because – they know exactly, oh, they can only go 350 miles. Mm-hmm. Oh, the most they can go is only 400. And then we know where to catch you when you're going. Yeah, look, I, I think all these are, it, it's all about control. And, you know, here's one of the things that is going to happen is on the, the mile um, tax, some states are already starting to do this. Electric cars have to pay a tax based on an estimate of how many annual miles are driven and they have to pay it. In some places, quarterly, sometimes they put it on an income tax. Um, And you are going to have to do this, frankly, because the roads in this country are paid for with a gas tax. When your car does not use gas, they have to, and you're using the road, you got to pay for it somehow. 
So there are mileage assessment taxes that more and more states are embracing, and the federal government is going to embrace it as just one more tax on you. But to Teresa's other point, yes, um, they know how far you can drive. A lot of these electric cars have way more trackers on them. Um, it's, it's you can't escape from Big Brother in one of these cars in many cases. And when you have to stop to fill up with electricity, it takes 30 minutes minimum, depending on the capacity of the charger. In some places in this country, the high-capacity chargers aren't that high, and it can take an hour or two, as opposed to takes five minutes, fill up your tank, and away you go again. That's a real problem for a lot of people in this country. I totally understand people's concerns about them. Uh, they should be concerned about these sorts of things. I would not mind having a Tesla. I'm not opposed to a battery-powered car. I drive back and forth to Atlanta from my house all the time. It's about an hour and 15 minutes to my office. They've got a high-speed charger there. It would work for me. I would save money. I wouldn't be buying as much gas. But I would never want to put my family in one to take a road trip to see my parents in Louisiana because, I mean, we would have to be calculating our route along high-speed service charging stations as opposed to just drive, find a gas station, fill up, and go again. It's freedom limiting, and the left is okay with limiting your freedom, putting you into a battery-powered car.